We are in uh, uh, week two of our series, Seven Signs. Um, I uh, had the privilege back in the day to uh, spend some time at a, at a camp, and camping ministry was uh, something I did for a couple summers. One summer I was a program director, I was a camp counselor, and I remember this one particular um, obstacle course that we had to do, and I experienced it first as a, as a participant before I understood how it worked, um, but, but it worked simply like this. Uh, they put a blindfold on you, and you know, anytime you're, you're at camp and they put a blindfold on you, you know, it's just, you're not asking for trouble. They put a blindfold on you, we're in the middle of the woods uh, on this obstacle course, this low ropes uh, course, you know, a variety of team building exercises, this sort of stuff. And we put a blindfold on and they, they walk us by hand to, um, to this maze. And they put about five, six of us in this maze and we have to feel the rope. It's just a rope maze so that the rope's about that weight high and you kind of feel along and then you, yeah. And you, you have to find your way out of, of the maze. And <laughs> I get my blindfold on and I'm feeling my way around uh, this rope and uh, this maze is impossible. There's no way to find your way out of this. And eventually I broke down and I, I was like, I, you know, I can't do this. I need, can someone help me get out of here or whatever? And they, they lead me out. Um, I took on my blindfold and I'm watching other people. And this is what I realized. I'd been wandering in this maze for who, who knows how long. The maze was about a 10 by 10 foot square with ropes that the, other, the people leading the maze would just adjust and move. And there was no exit. It was a box with no exit. And you couldn't get out of it unless you asked for help, which is the type of annoying object lesson people come up with at camps, right? And I remember watching kids go through this, and some, you know, for whatever reason, asked for help right when they got in the maze, and they, the, the counselor would lead them right out of the maze. Other people would stay in there for an immense amount of time, would never ask for help, and there would be little hints that that's all you had to do, but they're like, no, I'm going to figure it out, I'm going to figure it out, I'm figure it out. I don't know, what would you do if you were to put in a maze where there was the only way to get out of the maze was to ask for help? Would you still be in the maze or would you be out of the maze? How long would it take for you to ask for help? We're looking at a, a, a story today that ultimately is about what it means to, to humble yourself enough to ask for help. So we're in this series on seven signs. Last week, we looked at the water into wine. This week, we're going to look at the healing of a royal official's son. And then we're going to continue on uh, looking at a variety of signs. And we're looking at these miracles that Jesus did in the Gospel of John. But we're asking the question, why are they called signs? Because a miracle is just about something really cool happening, but a sign points to something else. It, it, it tells us something about who Jesus is. And so last week, we, took to, we looked at this sign, this miracle of abundance, and it pointed back to how Jesus was the Messiah coming to bring abundance to all people. Not the kind of abundance that we hoard or we hold on to, but the kind of abundance that is given freely and accessible to everyone, like we looked at in, in the book of Amos. Today, we're going to look at the healing of an official son and ask the question, in what way is this miracle a sign? What is it 
pointing to. So if you have your Bibles, you can go there, Gospel of John. Um, it is the uh, uh, fourth gospel in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John uh, will be in the fourth chapter. So that's easy to remember. It'll be the fourth gospel, fourth chapter. Um, and uh, we're going to look at verse, starting with verse 46. So you can follow along on the screen as well. Here it is, verse 46 of John chapter 4. Here's what it says. Once, uh, once more, he, speaking of Jesus, visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned water into wine. Pause right there for a second. You know, we're, we're told of this miracle that had happened a couple of chapters before, um, and it's, it's is what we call foreshadowing. He is back in Cana where water had been turned into wine. So we're already supposed to know as like people reading this, we're like, oh, okay. I wonder what's going to happen this time. I wonder what Jesus, last time he turned water into wine, what is Jesus going to do this time now that he's back in Cana of Galilee? So he, where he turned water into wine and going on, he says, there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. Certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. So I want to put up a, a map here uh, just to give it an idea of where Capernaum is. So Capernaum was along the Sea of Galilee, um, and Cana was in Galilee, but, but pretty far. It was about 20 miles away. So this royal official traveled either by foot or by horse or by donkey um, across dirt roads about 20 miles to find this guy named Jesus, who he didn't know a lot about, in order to ask him to do something about his son. So this is an immense amount of, this is a bit of a journey. This isn't a guy next door who heard about Jesus. No, he goes on a pilgrimage to find Jesus. He finds him in Cana, probably had heard about the water turned into wine there. He's looking for him. Jesus is back in town, and, and he travels all the way from Capernaum to do that. All right, next verse. Verse 47. It says, find my place here. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, so he had been in the southern kingdom, Judea, um, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. So here's this guy's story. He's got a son who is close to death. Um, he's got this boy. We don't know how old he is, but we know that he's sick. And then if something doesn't happen, he, he's not going to make it. We find out later he had a fever. So some sort of flu, some sort of illness that's going to kind of, he's just on his last breath. And if something doesn't happen, if something doesn't turn, he's going to lose his son. This individual was a royal official. The Greek word here is basilis. Um, it's the same Greek family as a kingdom which is the number one thing Jesus talks about. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. Kingdom appears like over nearly 200 times in the New Testament. He's talking about the kingdom. It's the same Greek word family as king, um, referring to a king. And so this royal official is, is not a king, but he is uh, very close to a king. It's like he's royalty. He's part of the royal family or he's part of the royal court. He's, it, that's how it's translated as royal official. This person works for a king. He represents the governments of their time. And he's very powerful and he's very wealthy. And this story is ultimately about this king who under any other circumstance would never go to the region near Nazareth and seek out a carpenter slash prophet. This is a royal official. He can snap his fingers, get anything he wants. 
He works in the courts of probably King Herod. He's extremely wealthy, extremely powerful. But he travels 20 miles in search of this nobody, hasn't even done a lot of miracles yet. This person named Jesus who was at that point raised as a poor carpenter and he seeks him out. Why? Because he's desperate. The story reminds us that, you know, sometimes in life it doesn't matter how much power you have. It doesn't matter how much wealth you have. I don't care what kind of kingdom you've built for yourself. There are some things we have no power over. And if you have a child who gets sick, you know exactly what that feels like. And that's not the only thing that we can lose. Like, we just feel like, I, it doesn't matter how much I've built up for myself, there are some things I just, I can't control. And that's where we find this royal official. His son is on the brink of death. He's reminded in a very painful way that he, there are some things outside of his grasp. Now, Scripture, when we ask ourselves this miracle that's about to come, what is this pointing to? Scripture is filled with stories of powerful people feeling powerless. So when we ask, what is this pointing to? What's the bigger story in Scripture? This is a common theme. Very powerful, king-like people who, under any other circumstance, could have anything they wanted, all of a sudden finding themselves utterly powerless. Uh, Some of the people that come to mind, uh, the story of Pharaoh and the person of Joseph, if you know this story. Pharaoh, Pharaoh of Egypt, could have anything he wanted, all of a sudden is told that there's going to be a drought, and he needs Joseph's help in order to figure it out. So he does. He gets Joseph's help. I think of King Saul, another story of a king who just had a really hard time, and he's up against Goliath, and no one would fight Goliath. Once again, David, one of God's people, kind of steps in and helps Saul. There's dozens of other stories of kings or pharaohs or very powerful people finding themselves in difficult positions. So that's what we're supposed to be thinking of. This royal official is something powerful, but now is feeling really powerless and needs help. Um, And honestly, how kings or royal officials or powerful people respond to those moments really kind of depends how their reign go. Now, a couple of other things. This miracle uh, coming forward, the son uh, is on the brink of death. Um, This miracle is one of, of about three types that we see in the seven signs. Last week, we looked at a miracle of abundance. That was the water into wine. Um, The other miracle that fits as a miracle of abundance we'll look at in a couple weeks is the bread and loaves being distributed to a bunch of people. So this is a miracle of abundance. Um, There are going to be a couple of healing miracles uh, where where Jesus heals a paralytic and heals someone who's blind. But this miracle is a little bit different. It's really a miracle of life. There's a couple miracles where Jesus is able to give life. Here is a story of somebody who's on the brink of death. Later, we'll look at Lazarus, who actually dies, and it's a miracle of Jesus giving life where there either wasn't or there almost wasn't life. So that's the type of miracle we're looking at today. Let's look at uh, verse uh, 48. Jesus says this to the, to, the, to the royal official. He says, unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. Now, I think this can be misinterpreted in a lot of different ways. Um, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you're never going to believe. It almost feels like Jesus is judging them. The reality here is, given the context, Jesus is actually going to perform a sign and wonders. The Gospel of John is all about Jesus performing signs and wonders so that we believe. This isn't a judgment. We don't, we don't want to put the wrong tone on Jesus. Jesus is making a statement, not a judgment statement, just a statement statement. The reality is, it's much easier to believe, is it not, if we've seen God do something. We've seen a sign. We've 
We've seen God show up. And that's just what Jesus is saying. Now, later, we won't get into it, but Jesus uh, gives a sign to uh, Thomas uh, after Jesus is raised from the dead. And he tells Thomas, you believe because you saw, but blessed are those who believe who never see. So there's a special blessing for people who kind of trust Jesus, even if they don't see signs. But he says, a lot of times you don't see because of signs. In, in fact, I think God wants to give us signs. In the Old Testament, there's um, a variety of stories about how Jesus or how God calls people to do stuff. All these stories where God asks people to do stuff. God's favorite commandment in those stories was to go somewhere. It's all about going somewhere. Go and do this. Um, Moses was go and deliver my people. Uh, Gideon was to go and fight this war. I mean, all of these commandments to go. And Jesus, God would show up. Uh, Abraham, go to this land. Go was God's favorite command. So if you're having trouble listening or hearing God's voice, you already know what to listen for. It's probably going to be some version of go. Go and do this thing. But every time God would tell someone to go do something, he would accompany it with a sign a way of reassuring people. And there's a variety of examples. My, one of the most popular ones is the story of Gideon. God said, go, and Gideon gets a sign. He says, well, how do I know this is you, God? And he does this whole thing where there's like dew on fleece. You can read the story, but he gets an immediate sign right away. Um, that's what I call a Gideon sign. You, you're like, God, is this what you want to do? And you, you go outside and you immediately are like, oh, this is clearly what God wants me to do. I see it. Right at my doorstep, literally, this is what God wants me to do. With Moses, it's a little different. I love Moses' sign. God says, I want you to go and deliver my people from Israel, and this is the sign that I'll give to you. Um, One day, you'll be back at this mountain having accomplished everything I sent you to do, and you'll know it was me. (laughs) And I'm just like, did you catch that? That's a great sign. He's like, you'll know that it was me because eventually you will have done it and you'll look back. That's what I call a Moses sign. It's the hindsight 2020 sign. Like you, you just have to walk by faith, but eventually you'll be able to look back at everything you experienced and the way God worked at it and, and you'll see the sign. So you see these different ways that God does signs, but God wants to give us a sign. Sometimes we want that sign that's right at our doorstep but most of the time we get that sign that's like, well, 20 years from now, you'll look back and you'll be like, God was there all along. So this guy uh, is looking for a sign. He's not going to have to wait long for it um, uh, because we know this is a miracle story. Verse 49 says this. The royal official said to Jesus, sir, come down before my child dies. This is a great example of people who have power. He traveled 20 miles to find Jesus. He needs Jesus to heal his son. He believes that Jesus has some sort of special power to do that. And he says, so come with me back to Capernaum. Come with me. I want you to travel to the next. I'm a royal official. Why wouldn't Jesus, a humble prophet, carpenter from Nazareth, which was not a great place to be from, why wouldn't he just follow him? And, and so you see here just a little bit of subtle power being played out in this relationship. He's like, I need you to come with me. Here's what Jesus says. Don't don't miss this. Verse 50. Jesus says, go. Your son will live. Did you catch that? One of God's favorite commands. He tells this official to go. And he says, your son will live. So what we see here is um, we're we're asking the question, who's giving the orders here? Is it the royal official who works for King Herod? 
or is it this humble carpenter, prophet, teacher, rabbi named Jesus? Who's really in charge? And in this very short interaction, we see that Jesus sort of um, subverts the power at play in the world. He says, no, I'm not going to travel 20 miles, um, and I don't even have to. Go, just like I've told a thousand other people to do in their lives. Go back. Your son is going to be okay. So verse 51 to 53, this is what happens. Um, He says, uh, the man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. The result of this miracle is this royal official and his entire family believes. Two things really amazing happen here. On the surface, his son is saved, and that's like, that's awesome. But in this particular instance, the royal official and his family understood that for what it was. They didn't get distracted by the fact that this miracle happened, that his son was saved, and that would be good enough. Like, you could just throw a party for that. They got what it pointed to. That's, it became a sign. They understood that the person who did this has to be extremely special. And when it says that his whole family believed, given the context of Scripture and how this phrase is used, what it means is, is they became believers of who Jesus is. So it wasn't just that they saw Jesus as a miracle worker. They understood that Jesus was the Messiah, that Jesus was somebody, somebody significant. And this is really, I think, really important when you, when you, when you look at it. Because if, if you're looking for signs and wonders and you're impressed by a miracle, you look back and you're like, man, these things lined up in the perfect time and God was there. You can be impressed with a miracle. And if you're only impressed with, with the supernatural or the miracle, you're going to say, look at what Jesus did. But if you understand a miracle or crazy things happening in the name of Jesus, if you understand as a sign, you're going to point and you're going to, you're going to, it's going to be something different. You're going to look and you're going to say, look who Jesus is. If you're just impressed with the miracle, it'll be, look what Jesus did. But if you understand it as a sign, it'll be, look who Jesus is. What does this say about who Jesus is? You know, this story is about those who have everything, finding out that Everything isn't enough. It's about powerful people feeling powerless. And and I know that you've been there. I know that you've been in seasons of your life where you thought you would build up enough security for yourself, and then you felt like everything kind of fell apart and you lost it all. And I mean, there's no better picture of this than knowing that your child is sick. I mean, there's a lot of other ways you can feel powerless, but that is a big one. And that's what the story's about. And, And when you feel powerless, friends, Whose help do you seek? We looked, uh, you know, Saul, King Saul allowed David to help. Uh, Pharaoh, who wasn't even a Hebrew, welcomed Joseph's help. But not all great leaders uh, allowed God to intervene. And um, I think of one in particular, and it's almost like we see here what happens when a royal official allows and actually go, humbles himself enough to ask this, this prophet, Rabbi Jesus, for help, what happens. But um, there's another story that shows you the opposite, and I want to I look at it. It's the story of King Ahaz. Uh, this was long before Jesus walked on earth. He was the king of Judah in the line of David, so he was like David's great, 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 great grandson. 
Um, it's during a time where there was two kingdoms. So if you remember that map I showed, the, the, the northern part was one kingdom, the southern part was another kingdom, and he was a king in the southern part. And uh, there was a lot of world powers at play. The northern kingdom was kind of in, in, uh, w collaborating with Syria, north of them. And then there was Assyria, which was a whole kingdom that had a lot of power. And then you had the southern kingdom or what they called Judea. Um, and Israel, or northern kingdom, and Syria were, were collaborating. They wanted the southern kingdom to get on board so they could go against Assyria. And it was this, all these politics. But the southern kingdom, Israel, where Ahaz was king, wouldn't join. So the northern kingdom actually, along with Syria, uh, attacks them, invades the south, all the way up to the city of Jerusalem. And Ahaz, as the king who had built this great city, you know, help, you know, was king of this great land in the very holy city of Jerusalem, he's now under siege by the northern kingdom and by Assyria because he won't join their forces. And, 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 and he's desperate. And there's this really great passage in Isaiah that talks about what happens. Um, it's Isaiah chapter 7. I want to look at a couple verses. Uh, he's he's uh, terrified. Um, he's not sure what's going to happen. He's told not to be afraid. And then this happens, verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 10 through 11. It says this. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. It says, ask the Lord, your God, for a sign. Huh. He's like, ask for a sign. That, that's, you know, that's interesting. He's like, ask for a sign. Whether it in the depth, deepest depths or the highest heights. I don't know if you've ever asked God for a sign before. I've asked God for a sign. I, other people have asked God, like, God, I, I, show me. Um, there's a variety of stories of where that goes well and where that goes poorly. It's tricky. But here in this story, he's like, ask God for a sign. Verse 12, here's how Ahaz responds. I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. This is uh, Ahaz coming across as pious, as kind of religious. You weren't supposed to test God. There are various passages about that. But, but we know from uh, Ahaz's story that he wasn't doing it because he was being religious. He, he was full of himself. So he's, there's nothing worse than pride being disguised as pious, being, being piet, uh, piety. Um, and that's what's happening here. He's, he, I'm going to do it myself. I don't need you, God. I'm not going to look for a sign. I'm not going to look for your deliverance. I've gotta, I'm going to figure it out myself. And here's how the prophet responds. Verse 13. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? In other words, let me translate this for you. Stop being an idiot. Who do you think you are? This guy's wandering in a maze. All he has to do is ask for help. Just ask the counselor for help and you'll get out. So the royal official did. That's what every person who's ever found God's deliverance in their life is because they, asked, they cried out. They said, oh my gosh, God, I can't do this anymore. And he won't. He's like, I'm not, I'm going to figure it out myself. I don't want to get it. I'm not going to, poof, doing it. I love God's response. This is how much God wanted to give him a sign. And catch this. This, this is what happens. Verse 14, he says this. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign anyways. I'm going to give you a sign anyways. And here's the sign that he gives Ahaz. You've heard of this sign before. It comes up every Christmas. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call him Emmanuel. I don't know if you've ever read the context for that passage Someday, Ahaz, here's the sign that you get. You won't ask for help. Here's the sign that you get. Someday, a virgin will give birth to a child, and we'll call that child 
Emmanuel. Now, the sign that he's given wouldn't do much for his current situation, but it would fulfill the promise that God made to him that you didn't need to be afraid, that it would be all right, that this sign would outlast you. See, we're talking about how Jesus does miracles, and these miracles are signs, but I don't, don't miss the point. Jesus is the sign. He always was the sign. Jesus came. The, the, the things that Jesus did are meant to remind us of that, that Jesus came to earth, that God took on flesh. That is the ultimate sign. It's not about look what Jesus did. It's about look who Jesus is, Emmanuel, God with us. Now, here's the hard truth. God doesn't always heal our children or fix our situations or help us overcome our enemies. But when God does and when God doesn't, it's always meant to remind us that God is with us. And that is the ultimate sign. God is with us. And even when things don't work out, even when everything falls apart, even when we're lost in the maze and it doesn't seem like there's anyone who's going to get us out of it, you know, when Ahaz is sitting behind a stone wall under siege, he's afraid for his life and everything that he's built, all of his treasures, all of his, his kingdom, and we've got a different kind of kingdom now. It's protected in stock markets and whatever, but he's got all of his stuff and he's worried about it. He is told, God is with you. In fact, just a few verses later, he said, be careful, keep calm, don't be afraid, do not lose heart. I don't know who's here who needs to be told that. Be careful. What great advice when you're terrified. Oh, slow down. Don't do anything rash. Be careful. Keep calm. Don't be afraid. Do not lose heart. Because God is with you. And we have to decide. In those moments where we feel like no matter how much we've gained for ourselves, everything is falling apart anyways, is trusting that God is with us, is, is that enough? Now, for Ahaz, it, was, Ahaz it wasn't. He, uh, he's like, nope, not going to do it. He ends up asking Assyria uh, for help. It's a little bit of like a soap opera, a lot of the Old Testament. So his northern people wanted help to fight against Assyria. So to kind of get back at them, he goes and asks Assyria for help, and Assyria helps them. But then Assyria takes all of these uh, immense amount of taxes from Israel. They become basically a vassal state. And, and then Assyria is like, well, you have to worship all these idols that we worship. And they asked help from not great people, and they totally exploited them because of it. And then because of all of that, this is how Ahaz is remembered in Second Chronicles. Um, unlike David, his father, great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Now, a big part of the secret to life is not only knowing when to ask for help, but knowing who to ask for help. Jesus is willing to meet us and help us, no strings attached. That's what I love about this story. He's like, all right, go home. You don't have to attend a church service first. You know, you don't have to you don't have to tithe first. You, you, he, didn't have to, he didn't have to choose to believe first. He's like, no, just go home. Your son's fine. I'm going to heal you already. 
That's the kind of help that God brings. No strings attached. So back to John chapter 4, verses uh, 54. Um, It says this, This was the second sign Jesus performed coming from Judea to Galilee. This is the second sign. Um, And it's meant to remind us that no matter how powerful we become, we're going to find ourselves Uh, in need of something or someone who is bigger than ourselves, that there are some things that no matter how much you have or how much you've saved, it's just not going to be enough. And in those moments, um, God wants you to know that God is with you, that if you've built for yourself, if everything you've built for yourself seems under siege, if all of the power you've acquired and the favor you've gained from this world um, still isn't going to be protect you from what, what means mo- is most precious to you, if you're wandering around life and, it, and it, you feel like you're in a maze, if you feel hopeless today, the question is, will you ask for help? When we talk about what it means to be saved, um, that's what we're talking about. I just ask you to think about where you're at right now. And when's the last time you just said, God, I can't do this on my own. I need you. I'll, I'll be honest with you. I spend large <laughs> chunks of my life or my week. I, in fact, I think I have this unspoken goal. Is anyone else related? Unspo- how far can I make it in my week on my own without God's help? Does anyone else live their life like that? I make it till about Thursday um, most weeks. But like, I'm just like, I'm going to do this on my own. I'm going to figure it out on my own and I'll show you God. And it does not go well. I don't know if that's you or if you're the type of person that wakes up every day recognizing your need for God. But uh, I know many of us are like Ahaz or other characters in the Bible that are like, you know, I'm going to try to do this on my own. And man, the consequences of that just aren't worth it. So I challenge you today. Take a second. Surrender all of your pride and all that stuff. You're like, yeah, I can figure this out and say, no, Jesus, I need you. Maybe you're not struggling with something as significant as a, as a sick child. That's fine. Whatever it is, surrender it. Say, God, I need you. I have no idea what God's going to do. I believe that God can do miracles in our lives, but I, but I do know one thing that I, can, that I can bank on. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Whether, I, whether I, what, hap, what I want to happen happens or not, it doesn't matter. I know for a fact you can bank on it, you can bet on it, you can money down, whatever, you can, I can ensure you that no matter where you find yourself or what God has or hasn't done for you, that God is there with you, that God feels what you're feeling, God knows where your hurt is, and God doesn't want you to be alone. Let's pray. God, we come before you and just give you thanks that you are, in fact, with us. Help us to humble ourselves. And all of those things that we assume we can figure out on our own. All of those big problems in this world that we're all trying to figure out and solve. And it just feels overwhelming. Help us to lay those down and just say, God, I need you. Help me. I trust that your spirit will come and comfort us. 
that you are able to do far more than we could ever think or imagine. That whether you fix our problems or merely sit with us in the midst of them, that you will be ever present. It's in Jesus' name we pray this. All of God's people said.